Well, you're just going to have to endure my enthusiasm for this moment. I love it when a group of people come together and we open God's word and we study what a phrase or a passage means. We apply it to our lives. We tell stories. We laugh. We cry. And at the end, we're more centered on how to live rightly. I love this moment. So thank you for allowing me to share this with you. And let's prepare ourselves for that. Uh, in addition to how that music just prepared us for it. The passage I'd like us to think about for just a moment as we get going here is Hebrews 4.12, where it says the word of God is sharper. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the image, of course, is a violent one. It's, It's one of an instrument of war that cuts through the flesh and through the ligaments and the bone and even down to the marrow of the bone and and lays open the human body. And uh, the Spirit of God inspired the author of Hebrews to say that's the way the Word of God is. It's living, it's active, and it doesn't cut our bodies. It, it cuts through the flesh and the ligament and, the, and the, the bone all the way down to the marrow of our souls. And whereas a, a physical sword does that cutting to destroy, the Word of God does that cutting to give life to expose things that need to be exposed and to fix them. More like surgery than slaughter. Holy Spirit of God, come do the work of surgery in our souls. Lay open anything that that sharp two-edged sword of your word needs to lay open and let it bring healing to each one of us here, to each one of us, a a message tailored to our specific, individual, unique, and oftentimes secret needs as we come in here. Nothing short of that is what we long for. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And of all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. 2006, 13 years ago, Bonnie. Can't believe. Bonnie, would you raise your hand? This is my wife, Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. (laughs) In the summer of 2006, Bonnie and I had our 25th wedding anniversary, and we decided to celebrate by sending our kids to camp. (laughs) We're not dummies, right? This was very clever because then we borrowed a cabin near Marble, Colorado, where, do you remember, Bonnie, we spent five days sleeping in and taking walks because by that time we had a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, I don't know, 13-year-old, and about an 8-year-old. It was a lot of work. And the camp we picked was Eagle Lake, west of Colorado Springs, because it had a variety of programs to fit our kids. For our eight-year-old Trevor, it had the normal fun and games and share the gospel sort of camp with crafts that are good for elementary school kids. Our daughter Eliza was in a horse phase, and they had a horse camp where she spent a good portion of the week hanging out with horses. I was a little worried about that. Horses scare me, uh, but she seemed to live through it, which is good. And for Taylor and Brandon, my two adventuresome and physically fit teenage sons, there was this thing called Rocky Mountain Challenge, also known as RMC. And I liked the prospect of RMC because it was a 12-day wilderness camp to learn more about mountaineering and backcountry problem-solving and leadership training skills. But when we dropped the kids off, we quickly figured out that RMC was more than just a mountaineering program. It was what's called a stress camp. Do you know what a stress camp is? A stress camp was designed to push teens past their perceived physical and psychological limits. 
In other words, it was designed to break them in some way so that they felt like they couldn't go further in the hopes that they would then learn to depend upon each other and then ultimately upon Christ. Among other challenges, the first morning they had a surprise wake-up at 4 a.m. Yeah, you laugh. Listen to this. Where they, they, were, they tromped through a swamp roped up to each other, sometimes up to their armpits in the muck. That was the opening move of this. And then the next 11 days involved such challenges as spelunking through a dark, narrow underground crevice that they couldn't see and they could barely get their bodies through. They did a 290-foot free rappel. That means hanging on a rope for 290 feet where you can't touch anything. You're just in the mountains in the air. They hiked, are you ready, 26 miles in 24 hours. They just dropped them off and said, you've got 24 hours to get back to there. And it was 26 miles back, including uh, orienting skills. They did a 48-hour solo in the woods. And on the final day, to top it all off, they did a 12-mile run, mostly uphill. The physical exertion made some of the kids throw up. A few of the kids didn't make it and went home early. There was often the stress of not knowing what was next. It was intentional to keep them off balance, and they sometimes didn't even know when they would eat next. Well, I picked them up 12 days later, and they described to me what I'd gotten them into. With a mixture of shock and anger, they expressed some anger at me, and some pride. And for over an hour as we drove back home, I asked a lot of questions, and I listened a lot, and I apologized. I apologized for surprising them with something that I hadn't looked into carefully enough. And then, at the end of all that processing, I asked them this question. I said, okay, you're a dad. You have a 16-year-old son. Would you send him on it? And in in stereo, simultaneously, they said, exact same words, they said, he goes. (laughs) And I went, what? You just described to me 12 days of, of stress. What, you just, since I inflicted it on you, you want to pass it on to the next generation? And they said, no. It's now we know that if we can do that, we can do anything. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I was so satisfied with that response and satisfied with the results because there were significant changes in their lives when they came home. Before, they were both nice kids. You would have liked them both. But to get them to be helpful or take on some simple responsibility was accompanied with somber faces as if I'd asked them to cut the grass with scissors. (laughs) And they might not even get the chore done or get it done well. But after RMC, I asked them to do something, and usually they did it pleasantly and did a good job of it. And I think that they compared everything to how hard the stress camp was and said to themselves, this is nothing. And if part of becoming an adult means to take on responsibilities rather than just think that life is meant to be played all the way through from first moment to last, if part of being an adult means to care for others rather than just to care for self, if it means to learn that just because something is hard doesn't mean it's bad or wrong, then RMC played a significant part in these two young men growing from nice kids into adults. And what stands out to me is that the maturing came to them through a desert-type experience and was a maturing that I'm not sure they would have learned any other way. 
You see where this is going, don't you? <laughs> Last week, we started a three-message series called Life in the Desert, in which we described deserts of the heart as times when we lack emotional and psychological and spiritual resources to thrive, and sometimes even to survive. We considered the fact that because of human sin, because of supernatural evil, because of sometimes the mysterious providence of God, we all traverse these life deserts, and that we shouldn't be surprised by them, but rather we should actually expect them and prepare for them. And in the second message, we examine the fact that sometimes, like RMC and my son's lives, we need desert experiences to learn and to grow and to mature as the followers of Jesus. And so this morning's big idea, what I'm hoping you get out of this, that you could take with you, is that we can learn three life-changing lessons from our traversing in the desert. That we can learn three life-changing lessons from living in the desert. And the first of the three lessons to be, lived, uh, to be learned in the desert is to set our hopes on heaven. To set our hopes on heaven. In 1 Peter 1.13, after just having written, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In other words, to go through life deserts. Peter writes this. He says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed To hope means to believe that life can be good, right? That's what hope is, believing that something good is coming. And to set our hopes on something means to expect happiness from that thing. If I say, I hope it snows, and I do, sorry, I love the snow. If I say, I hope it snows, then I'm telling you that I like snow. And then I'm looking for it to make me happy in some way. Peter encouraged us to set our hopes fully on something, didn't he? To, our expect, to expect our happiness completely from something and ultimately from nothing else. And he said that the object of our hope for happiness is the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ means his physical return at the end of the age. When what we now see is true of him just through the eyes of faith, we will then see through our physical eyes that he is Lord. And then he will reward all those who believed in him and were faithful to him while his glory was hidden to the world. When his name was mocked and used as a curse word. And we commonly call this age going to heaven. And Peter tells us to look for ultimate, lasting, true happiness. To set our hopes for that happiness in heaven. Our struggle? Our struggle is that to be to a biblical person, this sounds right. And it sounds good. And it even sounds obvious. But even for some of the most sincere followers of Jesus, we find it hard to live this way. For us now in these mortal bodies, earth is more real. Heaven's hard to imagine. We know so little about it. And a lot of what we think we know about it is mythology. And we tend to set our hope for lasting happiness on earthly things. Very normal, very typical. We can also be fooled by the deceitfulness of earthly prosperity. Let's be honest with each other. We have both the advantages and disadvantages of living in an age of unparalleled wealth 
for the common person. Nothing to feel guilty about. It's just reality. By historical standards or even by the standards of the majority of the people on the planet in our own day and age, we live in spacious, home, spacious, home, spacious homes with eye-popping luxuries. We have electric lighting in every single room. Can you imagine? Central heat, air conditioning, refrigerators packed with food. Daily hot showers piped right in to the privacy of your own home. Nice clothes. Sometimes the first stress we feel in the day is the choice of what clothes we wear. Whoa, talking about wealth. Nice cars, vacations, health insurance. And the truly remarkable, historically remarkable prospect for some of us of this thing called retirement. A time when you won't have to work to pay the bills? Do you know how rare that is in human history? And among the advantages of such wealth is that we can live healthier and happier lives, which is appropriate for creatures made in God's image. And we can actually invest some of this wealth in eternal causes by contributing to Christ-centered enterprises. This is all remarkable. It's all good, isn't it? The danger, though, and a great danger it is, is that we can fool ourselves into thinking that our ultimate and our lasting happiness will come from here and the now of our earthly riches and our earthly pleasures. We might turn to wealth and leisure, turn these two things into twin false gods on which we set our hope for happiness. Then the desert comes. And reveals the world for what it really is. A place lacking in true and lasting resources to take care of us. Then the recession hits us and we lose our job. Then the fire burns up the forests and our homes and our keepsakes. Then we don't get into the college we dreamt we'd get. Or we don't get the promotion we'd count on. And they gave it to some schlep who doesn't do the job nearly as well as we do. Just because he's the boss's nephew. Then relationships disappoint us, or worse, they betray us. Then we or a loved one get sick, and managing physical pain becomes the theme of our daily lives. And while these deserts are all a product of evil and sin in the world, and they're to be avoided if at all possible, if we have to travel them, what we know from Scripture and experience and the testimony of the saints is that God can use such deserts to teach us life-changing truths on earth. And one of them is that earth is not heaven, it was not meant to be, and it never will be. It will never make us completely happy. And if we learn that lesson, then not only do we learn to long for heaven, but then the very purpose of our lives changes from trying to be as comfortable and as happy as we can possibly be for a few brief decades in this third rock from the sun. It becomes a life of following Jesus and serving God and others until we go home. Listen to Philippians 1, 21 through 25, where the Apostle Paul described his experience of setting one's hope for happiness fully on heaven. Here's what he says. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There it is, right there. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, he says. 
Yet what will I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. This is better by far. You hear his hopes for happiness set on heaven, right? But it's more necessary for me that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain. Right? And I will continue with all of you for your progress and for your joy in the faith. Paul wrote these words while he was in prison. (laughs) And this reminds us that he faced personal deserts far more severe than most of ours. And that through those deserts, he learned to desire Christ in eternity more than life on earth. And then his purpose changed. Staying here was in order to serve others. Such is the life-changing power of the desert. First lesson. We learn to set our hopes fully on heaven when we traverse earth's deserts. A second lesson from the desert is to have compassion on the hurting. Deserts teach us, if we let them, to have compassion on the hurting. In Galatians 6.2, Paul wrote that Christians should carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Carry one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. To carry each other's burdens means to help each other in our life's deserts. To care about one another's trials, to listen to each other's pains, and not just listen with detached hearts, but actually enter into another person's pain and to mourn with them and even find ways to help each other in the midst of our pains if possible. Or if we can't stop someone's suffering, we say, at least I guarantee you, you won't go through it alone because I'll go through it with you. This is what compassion means. And Christ modeled this for us. Isaiah 53, 2-3, prophesied what Jesus actually would become when it described Messiah as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from, men, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And what was the result of that? He took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Jesus knew sorrow. Jesus knew suffering from deserts of the heart. He was disregarded as being from Galilee. He was accused of being an illegitimate child, of being demon-possessed, of being arrogant, of blaspheming, and of leading others astray. And how did those deserts shape him? It gave him compassion to take up our infirmities and to carry our sorrows. And because he was familiar with sorrow, he helped others carry theirs. And then in John 15, 12, here's what he said. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I learned to carry your sorrows. You learn to carry one another's sorrows. This is the law of Christ that Paul was referring to in Galatians 6, 2, that when we carry one another's burdens, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. But like our struggle to set our hopes on heaven, we struggle, don't we, to carry one another's burdens. We say things like this to ourselves, I already have enough burden. (laughs) I don't think I have any margin to carry anyone else's. It requires time. Sometimes it requires lots of time. Or we say things, besides, this is their their own fault. They're suffering because of their own stupidity. They're just getting what they deserve. Or we say things like, I don't relate. What can I do? Or I feel so helpless. 
Or sometimes, and we just have to confess this about ourselves, and this describes me sometimes, I'll confess before you, we just don't care. Instead of bearing one another's burdens, we might ignore the hurting or burden them with further unhelpful cliches like saying, well, into every life a little rain must fall. Please don't tell me that if I'm suffering. We say, God has a plan. You just have to trust him. It may be true, but it's not very helpful when I'm suffering. Or we say, just read scripture and pray more and you'll feel better. We actually say things like that to people who are hurting. And they're true. They're just not helpful at that time. And then the desert. The life-changing desert comes to us. We lose a loved one. We go bankrupt. We go through an unwanted divorce. We, or a loved one, gets cancer. Now we're in the desert. Now we've known hardship. Now we've known difficulties that don't have simplistic answers And we've learned the need for community in the midst of that crisis. And some of us have sometimes even languished without the community we need in those crises. And if we learn during our desert experience, then we're changed. Because we've needed caring, we care about others. And because we've suffered, then we project ourselves into their pain and we hurt with them. Because we know the darkness of suffering alone, then we say, you're not going to suffer in your darkness alone. I know what that's like. You won't be going through that because I'll be there with you. And understanding that our deserts of the heart didn't have easy answers as to why they happen or to how to get out of them, we are slow to give advice. We just offer someone our presence to unload some of the pain onto. But unless we had traveled our own deserts, we might never have learned the Christ-like ability to bear one another's burdens. First lesson we can learn in the desert, to set our hopes fully on heaven. Second lesson we can learn in the desert is to care and have compassion for the hurting. And a third life-changing lesson we learn in our deserts is to do away with false gods. To do away with false gods. And to talk about that, I need to explain what a God is to us, psychologically and emotionally. Our God, or gods, if we have many, is anything we love most in life. Whatever we love the most in life is our God. Anything that we look most to for help and for happiness, that we're counting on it for help and happiness, that's our God. Whatever we make the most effort to keep happy and to meet its demands on us, that is our God or our gods. And there are at least two problems with false gods. One, they dishonor the true creator, and two, false gods fail to keep us happy. They can't do it. Therefore, the sake of, for the sake of his honor and for the sake of our own happiness, God will sometimes allow us to, to, to traverse life's deserts where we suffer from our false gods failing us <laughs> and learn that only God can meet our needs and that only God is due that kind of honor of worship. Deuteronomy 8. 15 through 17, describes such an experience from our ancient Israelite spiritual ancestors when they endured a very difficult 40-year episode in the Sinai Desert. 
It says that he led you, he led you, he led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. Really? He brought you water out of a rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and test you. Don't like that, right? But now listen. So that in the end, it might go well with you. During the hundreds of years in Egypt, our spiritual ancestors not only became physical slaves of Pharaoh's building projects, they also became spiritual slaves of Egypt's false gods. When they cried out to God for deliverance, he used mighty miracles, the plagues and the wonders and the parting of the Sea of Reeds to break Pharaoh's grip on them and to free them from slavery. And then he led them into the Sinai Desert to break the grip of Egypt's false gods on their souls. There in that hot, dry, barren, resourceless desert, God showed them that he was God over all the elements by giving them miraculous bread and quail, just enough for one day. He showed them that he was the one who could take care of them in the harshest of circumstances by making water flow out of the rock of Horeb, also that they would learn to depend on him. Now, I wish I could tell you that the Israelites quickly abandoned their idolatry and learned to love and depend upon the true God, but alas, it wasn't so. When God put them in a difficult position of dependence upon him, instead of learning and growing, they grumbled. Numbers 21, 4 through 6, it says this, The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and this miraculous food? We detest it. It's miserable. Or as in Exodus 16, 3 through 4, where they said, if we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out here into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. God, we wish that you had just struck us down in desert, in, in Egypt, than to bring us out here. But out of that desert experience, gradually through the following generations, and it took some generations, the people of God not only learned to worship and depend upon the true God, but then they brought us that knowledge to the rest of the world because of a desert experience. And our struggle can be so like theirs. No, we don't fashion statues representing divine powers. We don't offer sacrifices to them. We don't bow down to them, asking them for help. But in our hearts... With our time and our energy, we're prone to one degree at another in various times in our lives to look for ultimate happiness in material wealth and pleasure, from popularity or power or success, from the pursuit of eternal youth, there's an American value for us, or the pursuit of endless, unstoppable entertainment, and from another person or even from ourselves, and we can spend our lives trying to meet the demands those false gods make upon us and finding that they fail. And then, then the desert comes. The harsh, difficult, blessed, merciful desert comes. 
And we lose some degree of our wealth or our health and our power or our popularity. We lose a relationship or a dream and it hurts. And if we're normal, you know what we do? We grumble. (laughs) Just like they did. Why, God? Why? But if we listen, then we hear God's Spirit whisper to our aching hearts that it might go well with you. I have you in this desert that if you learn, it will go well with you. That you will be free of your false gods and let me take care of you as only I can. And if we learn from that desert, we're changed And the words of Psalm 73, 25 come to describe us where it says, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And earth ultimately has nothing I desire besides you. And with that change of heart comes two great shifts in our lives. One, everything on earth becomes a tool rather than a treasure to use for God's glory and for the benefit of other people rather than a false God that we hoard and protect and, 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 and put away for our own satisfaction. And two, When we lose earthly things, even cherished earthly things, even good earthly things, we grieve. Yes, we grieve. But we don't die. And the reason we don't die is because they're not our God. Such can be the power of the desert. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? I want to close uh, this morning uh, by recalling uh, for us a profound scene from the Lord of the Rings in which the hobbit, Frodo, reflects on a terrible desert he's in. His uncle Bilbo bequeathed the magical ring of great power to him without Frodo even knowing what it was. Thanks, Frodo. Thanks, Bilbo. But now he's at the center of a terrible personal struggle as the power of the ring tries to possess his soul. And as the greatest rulers and armies of the age line up to try to capture the ring for themselves, and Gandalf, who's this thing called a wizard, and Frodo are sitting together in the dark and eerie silence during a moment's rest while they and their seven companions try to sneak sneak miles underground through the goblin-infested caverns of the mountains of Moria. They have a whispering conversation in which, with despair, Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. To which Gandalf replies with tender compassion and wisdom. He says, so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. at some point in our lives in a much less dramatic way, in scenes played out in the privacy of our own hearts and homes rather than on the stage of the world's great events, we will be forced to travel through desert experiences that are not of our own choosing. We wouldn't go through them if we could choose, but we just don't have the power to control the events around us to avoid those deserts. And of course, the easiest response will be, God, why did you bring us up out of Egypt just to die in this desert? 
There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. If only we had died by your hand back in Egypt. And in all that grumbling and complaining and fussing, do you know what we will learn? To grumble and to complain and to fuss. That's what we'll get out of it. Or we can understand that there are forces of good at work in our deserts that are bigger than the evil that's also at work in them. Please hear that again. In our deserts, there are forces of evil at work. But if our lives are in the hands of Christ, then in the midst of that desert, there are forces of good at work even bigger than the forces of evil. Forces that can take our harsh and hot and dry and barren deserts and use them to teach us to set our hopes on heaven, to have compassion for the hurting, and to do away with false gods. And so learning, we discover that by God's grace, we're changed, changed for the better in the desert. As we sing the last song, let it be prayerfully sung that God would use our deserts. I get the pleasure of speaking the benediction over you. I love the benediction. It's a moment where you speak a blessing over people, and if they understand, they kind of open their hearts and their minds and say, lay it on me. I need one more final encouraging word. And the benediction this morning comes from a famous season in the history of Christianity where beginning in the 5th century after Christ, the Spirit of God was poured out on this funky little obscure place called Ireland. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, and some guy named Patrick, who wasn't even Irish, he was British, ends up being taken slave there. And there he finds Christ in slavery. And it begins a movement of God's Spirit that brings Christ to the whole island. Then it started a missionary movement where they brought Christ to what we know of as Scotland and England and Wales. And in the following centuries after that, these Irish missionaries went to northern Europe and brought Christ there. Remarkable thing. And, and out of it came a theology of journey. They understood that life is a journey and that sometimes the journey is through deserts. And so this benediction comes from that era and has been spoken over Christian people in deserts for centuries since then. And now I speak it over you. May the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he's shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our shores. And all of God's people said, Amen. you may go.